0: The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would
1: like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit the themurderinmyfamily.com for more information.
0: You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Murder in My Family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to episode 68 of The Murder in My Family. This episode will be a little bit different from regular episodes because today we'll be discussing three important updates to cases we've previously covered on this podcast. Before we get into these updates, I need to take care of some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at Murder of My Fam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Jessica Wilson, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder, My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, today I'm bringing you updates on three cases that we've previously covered on The Murder, My Family. Three cases with quite different circumstances, different types of victims, and different outcomes. I highly suggest that if you haven't already done so, you go back and listen to the appropriate episodes for each case I'll be discussing here, so that way you're familiar with each case. We're revisiting the cases of Christine Gallegos from episode 12, Rachel Runyon from episode 9, and Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez from episode 5. Christine Gallegos was found stabbed and shot to death in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1985. The murder devastated her family, and as they tried to make sense of what had happened, police discovered that Christine's murder was linked to other deaths in the area, and that she was possibly the victim of a serial killer. We talked in episode 12 with Christine's brother, Steve Dern, and how he was still fighting for justice for his sister over three decades later. Rachel Runyon, who was just three years old, was abducted from outside of her Sunset, Utah home in front of her brothers in August 1982, 38 years ago this week. Weeks after the abduction, Rachel's body was found and the investigation of her murder led to the unthinkable possibilities that her case was tied to either a snuff film or to satanic rituals. Despite a composite sketch in Rachel's murder, the case remains unsolved. Rachel's mother, Elaine Runyon, shared with us in episode 9 her pain and anguish over losing her little girl in such a horrible way. Decades after the Utah murders of Christine Gagos and Rachel Runyon, their cases remain unsolved. But I'm happy to report that there are new investigative leads to follow in both cases. Jason Jensen, a Utah private investigator, has taken on both Christine's and Rachel's cases. He's looking at them with fresh eyes and it seems like he may be making progress in both cases. He's hoping that someone out there listening may be able to come forward with information to help solve the two murders of these innocent girls in Utah. In episode 5, we discussed how in July of 1981, the quiet town of Goleta in Santa Barbara County was rocked with the horrific murders of a single mother, Sherry Domingo, and her boyfriend, Greg Sanchez. The murders would eventually be linked to a long line of brutal rapes and murders, by an offender who had become known as the Golden State Killer. The case made national headlines in 2018 when the Golden State Killer was identified and arrested. Sherry's daughter, Debbie Domingo, talked with us in Episode 5 about what it was like to get the news after over 35 years that the killer was caught, and she discussed the outlook for potential trial against the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. Well, just this month, Debbie faced down that monster in court and watched firsthand as Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced to the rest of his life in prison. In this episode, Debbie discusses with us what it was like to finally have her day in court with her mom's murderer. I'm sincerely hoping that the families of Christine Gagos and Rachel Runyon get to one day square off in court against the people that took their loved ones from them, the way that the families of the Golden State Killer victims got to. The good news is that it's still a possibility It will just take the right person coming forward with the right piece of information. We'll be providing Jason Jensen's contact information as well in this episode, so that if people have information, they can reach out to him to help in Christine or Rachel's cases. Now's the time to help if you can, as August is cold case month in the state of Utah. I sat down to talk with Private Investigator Jason Jensen and with Debbie Domingo to discuss all of these important updates. Those conversations are coming up in just a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of the murder my family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hi, Jason, and welcome to The Murder of My Family. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Uh, no problem. Uh, I, I'm i happy to have you on because I know you've got some uh, important stuff you're working on. I guess for the audience, can you start off by telling us a little bit about what you do and what your background is?
0: Sure, sure. I'm a licensed private investigator in Utah, I am also a co-founder of the Utah Cold Case Coalition and one of the main podcasters of Cold Case Talk.
1: So you, you work a lot with these older cases, these ones that are uh, harder to solve.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't uh, had expected that five, ten years ago, but yeah, that's exactly where I'm at
1: now. And do you work, you mentioned being in Utah, do you work cases around the country, or do you focus just right in Utah? We,
0: we have done work on other cases out of Utah. My license, just like truck drivers or whatever, you know, you got a home state where your
1: license is, and mine is in Utah. And you happen to be involved in investigating two high-profile cases out of Utah, two that we cover on this podcast. The first was uh, the case of little Rachel Runyon, which I covered in episode 9, and the other case, Christine Gallegos, and I covered that in episode 12. Of course, both of these cases are unsolved, and I guess in any older case where things are evolving or new leads are coming in new information or new ways of investigating the cases, uh, that sometimes leads to progress and or potential progress in the cases. Am I correct in assuming that there is already or there may be the potential for new developments in both of these cases?
0: Yes, yes. We feel like we in both cases. Uh, I'm a fan of your work. Uh, I was aware of your coverage of both of these cases in the past. And, uh, yeah, I liked even the information that you brought out, which uh, in for instance, what comes to mind in the Christine Gallegos case was really something new that uh, law enforcement did not pick up. And ironically, both of these cases, uh, Rachel Runyon and Christine Gallegos, I swore off years ago that that if I went into cold case work, these were two cases I would not get myself involved in. And so it's ironic that I find myself on the cases and feeling like we were making progress because the reason why I swore them off is, uh, for the Rachel Runyon case, having been such a high profile case. Um, and you know, I guess being humble, I guess for lack of humility to say, you're trying to be humble that I never thought I'd be able to look at the case, any differently than all these experts had previously done to see anything new or profound to make a difference, right? Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I didn't think that I could, I could make, uh, any, um, c- contribution that hadn't already been exhausted. So I thought for sure that particular case that just because so many eyes have already looked at it, I, I doubted that I could do anything that would benefit as well as the Christine Gallego's case, I had prior exposure to that when I worked for a civil rights attorney in 2004, I believe it was, when family came to our firm for some, some help getting probate uh, work done to set up, you know, uh, legal representatives for litigation. And I thought, well, you know, this is way too complicated Uh, Having interviewed uh, investigators on one side of the coin of that case, I thought, wow, this is way too political. There's no way that I would dare get involved. I couldn't expose something that both sides of that debate could... uh, So those two cases I swore I'd never get involved in, and I'm glad I did. Um, When you covered Christine Gallegos, and uh, Christine's little brother, Steve, who's on up now, and you interviewed him, the information that you got out was the same that I had learned, that ironically, now, you know, let's set the stage for a second. In Christine's case, uh, you know, she was 18 years old and was murdered in March of 1985. And then, ironically, Carla Maxwell was murdered in April of 86, And forensics through the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms did analysis on the, on the, on the bullets in both cases that they were shot from the same gun. Okay. So what was ironic is that Steve, when he was 12 years old, he's the family of a victim of a shooting and then finds his way. 35 miles from home at the age of 12 between, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning finds himself just four minutes from being at the crime scene before Carla Maxwell was murdered, you know, and evidently from the same gun. So when I heard that from my interview with Steve, just like you revealed in your podcast, that was information I never heard before, and I thought it was too coincidental to be a coincidence. How does this 12 year old find himself a family member of one cold case victim? He's also at the crime scene of another cold case victim. So I felt with that new angle that there might be something we could learn from the case. And we, over time, have figured out uh, a lot of information that uh, we believe we have identified the killer. So now we're just trying to get additional witnesses that can place that killer either at the same party that, that Steve was at that night that Carla was murdered, or uh, some additional witnesses that will link uh, the key person we're looking at to the establishment that Steve and Christine frequented, which was an arcade called Our Comforts. So that's where the connection lies, is, is the killer uh, was a frequent guest or employee or the Our Comforts Arcade and also went to the after-party where a band was holding their little get-together that Steve attended as well.
1: So it comes down to this person sort of moving in the same circles as uh, Steve and perhaps uh, Christine.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Because when I was talking to Steve, uh, Steve mentioned that her friends. After her death, it's in that first or second layer of those friendships that this person um, was responsible for both murders that somehow is acquainted to Steve, whether Steve knows the person directly or it was an indirect uh, association. It's through that arcade that Christine was frequently at that Steve started hanging out at after Christine died. And then they would also, you know, the bands would play at that arcade and he was at the band's after party. The band was called Blackston. I don't think anyone in the band is responsible for the murders or murders, but they were, you know, all hanging out at our comfort. So somebody that went to our comforts can recognize the guy that we posted on of Christine Gallego's Facebook page that would recognize him and say, yeah, he was there that night at the party. That's what we're hoping for.
1: So that person, have you named him, or you just put a photo up of him or a composite sketchup of we him? We put
0: a, we put a, yeah, we put a photo up of him. We know his name, but we know, you know, from human nature, people, would better recognize a face than they recognize the name, especially back then, and these guys had street names. So it's entirely possible that if I posted the guy's real name, they would recognize the picture and either give us the name, which gives gives the witness more credibility than if we blab everything out, picture name and all, and somebody just simply rubber stamps what we're sharing. That's not a forensic investigation.
1: That makes sense. You're not leading them in any way. Instead of giving them the name, you just put a picture out and wait for you to get the name from someone coming along that has the information.
0: Exactly.
1: And the, the photo that you have up, is that from back in the, in the 1980s when it happened, or a more recent photo?
0: It's very close to the timeline because this person was subsequently arrested in 1987, so it's an 87... 87- mugshot photo, but at least it's within two years or one year of either of the two ladies' crimes, but at least it's close enough that, that you know his appearance wouldn't change by that much. But clearly, if you post a photo of somebody nowadays from 1985, there's a huge difference in appearance. Uh, you know, and I can vouch for that. Looking <laughs> just in my own mirror.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. I had a lot more hair back then than I have now. Um, oh yeah.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I'm shiny. Where I used to have hair down to the middle of my back in
1: 1980s. Exactly. So, and and I guess the focus then is for people that hung out in this arcade that that were regulars there. You want people to come forward and. What was the name of the uh, arcade again, and where was it located? Do you have an address so people will will know it exactly?
0: Sure. The arcade was R, just the initial R, Comforts. And it was an arcade located at 484 South State Street in Salt Lake City. And the reason why its name is R Comforts, that's short for the owner's name, who was Roger Comfort.
1: And how long was that arcade open for? I assume it's still not an arcade now.
0: No, no. It was there basically for two years from 1985 to the Talon of 86. And then Roger sold it for whatever reason, and it became uh, another arcade. I think it was called Alice's or something like that.
1: Okay. So the the clues in in Christine's case – or seemed to be around that arcade, and that's where you could use some help at.
0: Exactly, exactly. We want to speak to anybody that remembers going to the arcade, that was there frequent enough that, you know, they remembered others that went uh, uh, even better, that hung out there after hours when it was uh, the bands were playing or after, you know, guests were asked to leave that had the privileges of hanging around, after hours with the owners, band members, things like that. Okay. Because they will have more intimate knowledge of the ongoing things there at that time than somebody that just showed up with grandma with a pocket full of quarters in the afternoon.
1: Yeah, so this this is more of maybe a behind-the-scenes type of uh, connection to the, to the arcade, someone that was a VIP or something along those lines where they weren't just a casual guy that came and spent a couple quarters and left.
0: Exactly. Because the rumors we have about our comforts is, yeah, there was the bands that night, but there was also escorts, drugs. So we have the total package, mid-80s, sex drugs, and rock and roll going on there. We want to know who knew all the secrets there, who was doing what, who was running what. How, how are any gang members associated, and, and, and the like.
1: And was was this person alleged to have been in a gang or just like a, a lone bad guy, yes. you know? Yes, he's
0: alleged to, to be in a gang.
1: Would it be helpful to, to give that gang, gang name out or any information about them?
0: Sure, I would think so. Uh, the, the name of the gang was The Various Chosen Few,
1: so we're looking for somebody that, that may have been hanging with them and hanging in that arcade. Exactly. And hopefully if people have information about that, they can uh, bring that forward. And, and at the end, we'll, we'll give out the pertinent information about both of the cases to contact you and, and provide information. Um, let's shift gears a little bit to Rachel's case. Now, obviously, yeah, yeah. there's there's a different thing at play. This seems to be a straight stranger abduction of a young child, which is, you know, the odds are when a kid, you know, a child goes missing, most of the time it's someone they know. It's not usually a stranger. Everybody, you know, every, I think every parent out there, including myself, is always on the lookout for for strangers. But uh, I think most of the time, if I'm not mistaken, that's not who you have to worry about when it comes to your kids. But in, in Rachel's case, it definitely seems like it was a stranger abduction, correct?
0: Oh yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. We full believe this was a stranger abduction and th- this abductor, you know, just took advantage of the opportunity that uh, she and her brothers were playing without their immediate parental supervision. So, the mother was watching from her window because the playground was only 15 feet away from their yard. And they had just installed a gate because Rachel's brother was just about to start kindergarten. So just the following week. So the kid begged to go over there while she was preparing lunch. So she felt it was safe to let him just, you know, go beyond the border of, their property long enough for her to finish their lunch and then she'd call them back in to eat Little did she know there was lurking about a you know ominous figure with bad intentions
1: yeah i think for me personally that was uh, when rachel's case uh, came out i think i first heard about it on unsolved mysteries a lot of people probably probably did but I was a teenager when I saw that on on that show, and I remember thinking when I grow up and have kids, they're not gonna go out of my sight. That's the first time I realized that there were people out there that were uh capable of doing evil things um, now of course she was found dead um but amazingly, I think it's amazing anyway that um there was a lot of detail provided early on um about a car about a suspect um that that to me i i get frustrated when you have some some things that were were pretty clear uh all these years um that didn't lead to anyone with the new developments that you're working on is there a reason to believe that maybe all that stuff that we've had for years wasn't completely accurate
0: yes yes and i w- i was uh gonna mention that if uh, you didn't give me a A segue, but I'm glad you did. Uh, What ended up happening that I observed uh, firsthand just this past weekend, for instance, um, this last weekend, uh, Rachel's mother and myself uh, went through some old news coverage from 1982 to the present, and we're talking 10 hours, everything from a talk show that they've been on all the primetime news, local news, regional news, CNN coverage that had happened, especially intriguing was those first hours and days and weeks. What was interesting that I learned, uh, and the reason why the case is where it's at is, let's set the stage for a second. It's, It's August 82. In fact, on the 26th, which is... Just six days away, will literally be the 38th anniversary. This happened on August 26, 1982. So, media compared to now, it was completely different. You know, now we got a 24-hour news cycle. You know, we got cable news, and and we're just constantly being drowned with news. Social media shares everything up. And today we have amber alerts, things like that. Things like that. Back in nineteen eighty two, there was no such critter. In fact, in nineteen eighty two, you would dial the operator. We didn't even have the nine one one system for Sunset Utah at the time. So what happened was when you get the news coverage, you'd have the two local newspapers, uh and there was the a a. a a regional one. So we had the standard examiner for northern Utah that covered even sunset area. Then you had the the statewide ones, you know, the Deseret News and the Salt Lake Tribune. That's the print media. Then you had just three channels, Channel 2, Channel 4, and Channel 5. You'd get your news at 6 o'clock. You'd get your news at 10 o'clock. A couple hours later, the stations would sign off for the night. So if you missed the news, you didn't see the news, right? So, and you didn't have TiVo, you didn't have uh, on-demand or anything like that, if you just didn't see the news. And so the news at that time covered this case. It covered it extensively. But one thing that I noticed is how details of the abductor devolved quickly over time. For instance, what I noticed in that coverage is that one of the channels even depicted two sketches, where you're probably familiar, because I was only familiar with the one. And if you if you looked at the second sketch, you'd see that the second sketch actually had the same same skin tone, had the same basic descriptions, mustache. Uh, uh, afro hair things like that but that face and the facial features actually looked more hispanic so i believe that quickly over time there was a a it went from a broad description to a narrow one and it got so focused on the african-american appearing sketch that it excluded all other possibilities including you know, a Dominican with an Afro or, uh, you know, a Polynesian with an Afro or things like that. Because, you know, there's more than one dark-complected, brown-complected, you know, ethnicity in our in our world. But if you just focus on uh, these African-American or something, rather than your neighbor who may have been Hispanic and otherwise also fit fit the description, you're not going to call the police on it. And that's what we've learned in our investigation. We feel pretty confident that we know who did this. He has a Hispanic background rather than American, uh, African-American. But, so anyway, so I thought I was bringing out new information when I talked to Justin this past uh, January, December time frame the guy had a gap in the filtrum, which is that little reservoir underneath your nose. But in reviewing this original 1982 footage, they even talked about it there. But it was lost in the annals of history. We don't hear that. We don't see that printed anywhere. Because, you know, great websites like WebSleuths and these other, you know, true crime uh, enthusiast sites, they're, t- they're talking about the things that they've come across in more modern times. They're not looking at stuff, because not- stuff in 1982 wasn't readily available for us all to explore it. So I thought I was presenting new information. All I've done is revive original descriptions back out to the public. And when we did that, we got a hit. I pointed out that from the the details... Uh, that were known to us, that, you know, the description was a little bit off. You know, we're looking for someone that had a gap in his philtrum. We're looking for somebody that was a local. One of the things that distracted investigators that led, in my opinion, investigators to look uh, elsewhere outside of the state was there was some story that somebody saw a truck driver with a little girl. And so that really opened uh, the, the thoughts, the worry that this was an international uh, or interstate kidnapping, and that they needed to look elsewhere, and that's one of the reasons. W- within a week, Rachel's parents were on uh, CNN trying to get national exposure because they were afraid that their daughter was no longer in Utah, and that's before they found her body just a, uh, you know, three weeks later. Still local, so that should have dispelled any belief that this was an interstate killer. And the other fact that I noticed right away was when I was listening that that this killer enticed her for some bubble gum, and she says, "I like ice cream," so he offered to take her to Bobco's. That's a, that was a local area grocery chain. So. If uh, the killer knew Bob calls, it wasn't some truck driver driving through, right? So, yes.
1: someone, these clues, someone that has a, a, a connection to that store knows that store from from the air. It sounds like
0: that's right. So, instantly, what I then shared with social media was the fact that we're looking for somebody that was not necessarily African American, but you know, had a light brown complexion, had had an afro and a mustache and the gap in his philtrum. And he was local because of the Coast thing. And because, you know, uh, Rachel's remains were found within 15 miles from home rather than, you know, some uh, isolated area out of state. So when I presented that stuff, you know, and a lot of people have, have lived in the Sunset area in 82 have moved out, but they still follow Rachel Runyon's page that her mother created. And when that information was shared, we got a response. Somebody that even believed that their family thought it was their uncle, but didn't turn him in because he was an African American. And so we shared that information with Sunset Police, uh, And they've shared it with the attorney general's office who has taken over the investigation. And we're hoping that through their DNA uh, testing that will confirm that this guy that was in our lead matches the killer.
1: And a couple of points, I want to come back to the DNA, but a a couple of things you referenced talking to Justin for people that are familiar with the case, Justin is Rachel's brother who Right was with her and provided many of the details in those descriptions of this man that took her. Um, and I think, what, was he five at the time?
0: Yes, he was her older brother who was five, and yeah. he gave a detailed account of the killer. Likewise, a 10-year-old also in the park, and his name was Sean, he gave a description. That's why there was two sketches.
1: And and they both and it
0: makes sense to me. But at the time, it's like, why are two descriptions yielding one sketch? Well, they didn't. Mm-hmm. But they just favored one sketch over
1: the other, and that's the one they went with. And and I, I've always been amazed that kids were able to provide at that age were able to provide some detailed descriptions, and and not just of them, but of the car, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. But you know, a ten year old's going to recognize blue, green, red. So it was probably fairly easy for the description of the vehicle to come forth because, you know, it was just simply a blue hatchback midsize car with brown uh, wood grain panels.
1: Had so, you narrowed that down to a specific maker model? I know you had uh, been talking about certain makes and models in the past.
0: Yes, yes. We believe that it was a, and bear in mind the, Mercury Bobcat was, was the, you know, the Mercury is always an upgraded version of a Ford and the equivalent of the Mercury Bobcat is the Ford Pinto. So we have, um, in in insights that this vehicle was either a blue Mercury Bobcat with the wood grain panels, or it was a Pinto with the wood grain panels.
1: Yeah, and when you and add it's that. hard to confirm.
0: It's hard to confirm the ownership or what the actual make and model is. You know, thirty-eight years later, because those DMV records aren't available, and the the parents that own the vehicle that of this uncle have long passed away, so we can't interview them.
1: Yeah, and that's that seems what makes it even more frustrating because you've got this pretty unique looking car with a description, whether it's black, Hispanic, whatever they may be, they're a, a darker skin, but you have a, a general idea of what they look like, driving that car, that's one of the frustrating things that um, you seem like you'd have a good head start with that. And the fact that it's just not solved after all these years is very frustrating. Um, but back to the DNA, then that may be where the ultimate... Um, solving of the case could come there's the, the police haven't been very uh vocal about what they have or what they don't have can you talk about that a little bit as far as do they have enough to rule people out do they have enough to do genealogy that kind of stuff
0: well i'm certainly not uh at liberty to share information along that because that's their investigation if i have information it's just because i'm blessed to have that so i cannot confirm or deny i have anything but we do feel confident that uh, from an outsider looking in that they should be able to uh, confirm the identity of this guy if in fact uh, uh, our lead and everything is right
1: Wow. It's again, we're we're talking about what thirty eight years and um thirty five year old cases uh, today. Both of these cases are, um, and the fact that there's any kind of progress, you know, decades later is is pretty promising. And just I think we see in the news all these cases getting solved, and it just gives us hope for these two cases. Now, and the most important exactly. thing I want to put out here is. If someone has information about either of these cases, should they contact you directly or go to the uh, Facebook pages? What are the content, best ways to contact you with this information? Uh,
0: they're more than welcome to call me directly. My cell phone number is 801-759-2248. But they're probably better off uh, trying to reach through us after they search through either the Justice for Rachel Runyon page that's managed by her mother or uh, the Christine Gallego's Connections page on Facebook that I manage. So that way they get a chance to, you know, uh, look at posts and refresh their memory and uh, make sure that they're not uh, wasting their time. And one of the things that I would like to add is that uh, the Utah Cold Case Coalition, which I'm the founder of, we are always uh, promoting August as Cold Case Month, which is how Steve uh, got a hold of me initially in the Christine Gallegos case. Cold Case Month works. Uh, we wouldn't be where we are on Christine Gallegos without promoting Cold Case Month. And what's unique about this Cold Case Month is that we are offering a $10,000 reward an increase from 5,000 uh, for any information that helps us uh, clear up uh, Christine's case or resolve Rachel's case.
1: Uh, and then I always hope people come forward and do the right thing, not for money, but if, if it's money that helps solve these cases, so be it. Uh, as long as someone does come forward with information, that would be great. I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk about these cases. They're, they're two big ones that I covered and ones that I hope to see solved, obviously, um, for Uh, Rachel's mom Elaine and her family and then for Steve and his family Um, they've been waiting a long time for justice and uh, I think they're they're really lucky to have you working alongside them I hope you guys catch a break
2: the good news is that as I learned more and more and started interacting with people who were also passionately seeking answers my mission evolved For the first time in my life, I had clear-headed, laser focus on an important goal. I was no longer just an orphaned daughter without a shred of hope. I became a voice and an an advocate for the many, many victims in this series of crimes. I don't know if D'Angelo was ever aware of my efforts to find him out, But if he didn't know my name before, he'll know it now. Today I am Debbie Domingo McMullen, surviving daughter of Sherry Domingo, whose murderer now has a name and a face. I am no longer plagued by images of a masked, faceless monster raping, terrorizing, and bludgeoning my beautiful mother. I am not that lost teenager anymore. Today, I am in the room with the pathetic excuse of a man who will now finally be held accountable for his actions. If I had my way, he would be shivering, blindfolded, naked, and exposed every moment from now on. I'll settle for caged, shackled, humiliated. Oh, and nervous as hell, because everyone around him in prison will know exactly who he is and what deplorable things he has done. Today, the devil loses and justice
1: wins. Hi, Debbie, and welcome back to the murder of my family. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, you too, and this this is a very special occasion because... You just had your day in court and uh, with the person that killed your your mom, Sherry, and her boyfriend, Greg. And it's been a long, a long ride for you to get to this point. Uh, you know, I'm sort of at a loss for words to, to try and put myself in your spot. But, you know, for someone that's been waiting for this for so long, what was it like to actually get to the part where you're, in court facing the person that did this, knowing that when you left court, they were going to be spending the rest of their life in jail? Um,
3: it's been incredibly satisfying, and it, it's hard to explain. It's been 39 years since my mom and Greg were kids, and you um, heard me say this, but I spent the first 20 years after believing that it was completely cold, that the case files were sitting in storage somewhere, gathering, trying to raise awareness for the case, trying to, uh, trying to garner leads, trying to uh, publicize and get help from the public about how to solve the case. And, um, obviously the news of the arrest was enormous two and a half years ago. DNA science actually identified a subject and good police work. Um, brought him in and so now to get to the point where we were actually in court and so i've i've seen him in court several times over the last two and a half years uh but this week in particular um this this week felt different because he's already he's already confessed he's already admitted guilty or i admit to all of these hundreds of crimes and um so he's already a convict at this point from the time that he said guilty, um, he is a convicted felon, and there's, there's no changing that. Um, so this week to approach for, for sentencing and to give impact statements, um, there were so many of my fellow survivors who, um, approached this week with some anxiety and some, some nervousness about, you know, what to say and, and how to say it. Um, And I think they were worried too about like the the rules of the, of the court, what we were allowed to say, um, you know, uh, and it's so funny too, because, because at the plea, uh, we virtually, we sat and listened to, you know, upwards of seven hours of recounting of his crimes and all of the profanity that he used when, when dealing with his victims. And then, um, and then in preparing our impact statements, everybody's like, well, you know, can I not use the F word? <laughs> you know? So people were, people were concerned. Um, for me personally, I was really looking forward to this week as the opportunity to not just to tell my story, because I've done that hundreds of times over the past several years. I've told my story over and over again. But I was looking forward to having my story become a part of the official court record. To me, that was monumental. So um, so this week I have come away with just this sense of um, accomplishment and victory uh, that I really wasn't expecting, but I'm definitely feeling it. It's very hard to describe.
1: And, and I think so many people have been following your story and, and everyone else's story connected to the Golden State Killer. But just a quick recap. I think everyone knows that he was captured uh, with genealogy uh, in, in 2018, You, you came on the murder of my family back uh, in July of 2018, you know, a few months after he was captured. So Mm. you were sort of just getting used to the idea of after all this time, I know the person that did this now, it's just a question of going through the court. And at the time they were talking millions of dollars, years of trial, who knew how long that would stretch out. Uh, But here it is just two years later and you're, you're, this is sort of in the rear view mirror as far as everything that's gonna happen. So my question is is how has that you know, two years passed by going through those different stages of I don't know who did this to now I I know who did this and and now uh this person I faced off with them in court and they've been found guilty and they're going to jail. How how has that been transitioning through those stages?
3: Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I, you know, the, the whole idea of, um, of going to trial was, uh, it was really bizarre because, you know, there, there was talk early on about, you know, should they, should they try just the Ventura murders first and then move on to different jurisdictions, and yada, yada. And then they came up with the, you know, obviously the district attorneys came together and I, I affectionately called it the super trial. We were going to have the super trial um where Where they charged everything altogether, and that that all just reinforced to me that this case, in so many ways, has set precedent um, you know, back to you know, when he was raping, there were no um, procedures in place for how to handle rape victims. So Carol Daly paved the way for you know, for what we now have as uh, rape kits and rape crisis centers and all of those things were born out of this case. And then you move on to the DNA technology and the investigative genetic genealogy. And that has paved the way for hundreds of other cases to be false cold cases and current cases. Um, And then you look at the super trial aspect and that was, um, you know, obviously never, never been done before uh, with all these jurisdictions coming together to, um, to prosecute uh, one perpetrator. So, so the history-making aspect of it, for me, has been fascinating. And I, then on a, on a personal level, um, you know, I wasn't looking forward to the whole, you know, five to ten years in court and ten to twenty million dollars of taxpayer money spent on this piece of scum. Um, it, the waste, to me, seemed uh, ridiculous. But at the same time, I really wanted our day in court. I wanted for the evidence to be presented and witnesses to be heard from and proof beyond a shadow of a doubt and uh, for secrets to be exposed on the record and in the public eye. Um, There's a part of me that really wanted that. Um, So to get to this point where he has now pleaded to all of these things, um, I'll admit there was a little tinge of disappointment that we weren't going to get the huge trial, but I think this is the best resolution that we possibly ever could have hoped for.
1: Yeah, I guess theres it's a little bit of human nature to want to know what else is there, uh, what else can he offer, what other secrets is he holding, mm-hmm. um, but this is sort of a trade-off. You don't get all that, but you do get resolution on, on a lot of different stuff that, that we know he did. Um, and that's gotta be a a tough situation to be in to say, do I get all, all everything way down the road or maybe I don't get everything or do I settle for, for getting this now? Um, yeah. So I can't even imagine being in your position to try and decide which one of those two routes you would want to go.
3: Yeah. Well, and what's interesting for me though too, and what's very important to me is, um, the fact that he did end up pleading to or uh, admitting guilt for uh, all of these uh, other uncharged crimes that were passed the statute of limitation, all of the rapes, uh, for me, that is huge. Because, my, you know, my personal motto in all of this has been justice for all. I hashtag it all the time, hashtag justice for all. Because I firmly believe that the justice that we have been seeking in this case is not just about the 13 murders. And it's not just about the few cases uh, on the rapes where they were able to charge the kidnapped for robbery. It really is, we've been seeking justice on behalf of everyone that he encountered, everyone who, that he, uh, from back when he was peeping and burglarizing um, and, and obviously stalking. And I mean, everyone who's been affected by this, I have felt like we have been seeking justice on behalf of everyone he hurt.
1: Yeah, I I applaud the way they did that. Even though he couldn't be technically charged with those things, he still mm-hmm. they still made him admit as part of the deal to those things. Um, yeah. So that it, it, although statute of limitations had run out on those those archaic uh, 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 rape laws that they had back then, the, such a short uh, period of time. Um, yeah. That a lot of those victims still had their, their, uh, encounters, um, yeah. on, on record. Uh, and I thought that yeah. was a good, a good to way be, to do that.
3: Absolutely. And for them to be able to offer victim, uh, victim impact statements was just, I mean, it was, it was really just the perfect way for it to go. I, I believe that I know there will be some who disagree with me, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I'm I'm so happy with with the way it has all worked
1: out. Well, it's it's the I, I guess an outcome that you hope for. I know when when I first met you, you didn't know what was going to happen if any if you'd ever be caught, and then it just sort of <laughs> fast tracked after that. Um, and and this episode that that I'm doing, uh, we're dealing with cases that are thirty, forty years old almost. And the families are in the same situation of, okay, I'm waiting for answers. I'm seeing all these other cases like the Golden State Killer solved in the news. Is it, something going to happen in our cases? And there is a little bit of movement in these cases. Um, so I think that gives those families hope that maybe they'll have an outcome like you had. What advice would you have for these families that are in, you know, you were in their shoes?
3: Mm, good question. Um, I have several little bits of advice. Number number one is be the squeaky wheel. Um, do everything you can to connect, not to drive them crazy, but connect with your investigators and um, try and facilitate that that open communication. Be available in case they have questions for you. Ask plenty of questions. Make them do their job. Um, and... Um, but the vast majority, I think, of investigators who are working on the cold case, they're doing it with the intention of solving. They're going to work their tails off. And they need to be reminded that there are very real victims waiting waiting for that to happen. So not to put the pressure on, not to, not to come up and say, okay, where's my silver platter with, with uh, with uh, you know, a gift-wrapped criminal on top? Um but to to really engage and and be available um, to work alongside those investigators. And then the second piece of advice that I have is just never, ever, ever give up hope. Never give up hope. Um, And and that's easier said than done. I, I spent 20 years having had given up hope and, um, but but when you get a spark of hope, grab onto it, cling onto it. Uh, don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to share what you're going through because you're going to need support because it's going to be a long haul. Um, and, and then the last thing is I'm going to say don't make this the focus of your life, and that's also easier said than done. Um, I, I spent years um, at my laptop when I could have been with my children and grandchildren. And fortunately, in my case, it paid off. In fact, I had one of my daughters come to me after the arrest and say, Mom, I owe you an apology. And I said, what? <laughs> and she said, you know, I've always given you a hard time because, because I'd, you know, we'd be putting dinner on the table and we'd say, okay, Mom, you know, break, break away, come eat with the family. And, um, you know, and I was neglectful. I really was. But she said, she said, I thought that you were wasting your time. She said, I thought they were never going to find him and that you were wasting your time, wasting your life, wasting our time with you. And, and she apologized and said, you know, I never thought they'd catch him. But, um, but it's so important to have that balance. So do what you got to do for your case, try and get your closure any way that you can um, but live your life as well. Find some, find some good balance.
1: And if, if, the people, the families in these cases are lucky enough to see an arrest made and, and make it to trial. What advice would you have for that portion uh, of the uh, time after the arrest or, or going into court?
3: Oh, okay. I've actually got some really good practical advice. Um, I can speak to my own experience the day of the arrest. And I've told the story before, but it's really kind of funny. The first piece of advice I'm going to give is um, – Allow yourself some really good boundaries for social media, and I'll tell you the story for, for social media and for the news media, um, and I'll tell you the story about that in a second. But then the other thing is get started on writing your impact statement early while it is still fresh in your mind. Um, that's, that's critical. I'm glad I started writing my, writing my statement uh, just a few days after the arrest. Uh, that helped me immensely when it came to two and a half years later, when they said, "Okay, you need to have a statement by such and such a date." Um, I already had a pretty darn good start, so um, so I think that's important. But as far as the media goes, um, when you get an arrest, um, <laughs> my my phone literally blew up during the press conference where they had they were. Um, announcing that they had arrested this Joseph James D'Angelo, former police officer. My phone was just going nuts. And I had both my daughters in the room with me and and my husband. And we're watching that press conference. And my phone's going off the the hook. Just, you know, people saying, are you seeing this? They arrested him. There's a press conference. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So I finally set my phone aside until the press conference was over. (laughs) When it was over, I picked up my phone. And I can't tell you how many text messages, emails, Facebook messages. It was, it was insane. And fortunately I, I only started to try and answer a few before one of my daughters said, mom, give me your phone. And I said, what? And she said, give me your phone. And she took my phone out of my hand and she started triaging it for me. She'd say, okay, this person uh, is asking such and such answer now or later. And I would say later and, she, and she'd say, okay, you know, uh, NBC news wants to talk to you. I get a number. I'll call him back. And so I was able to to kind of juggle that and set it aside, and only answer what was critical at the moment, and and set the rest aside for later. And I'm not kidding; we spent probably the next four to five days sorting through all of those initial contacts. Um, and that first day, I did seven interviews. Uh, one of them was actually a camera crew that traveled five hours to come camp in my living room and interview me the day of the ar- the night of the arrest. <laughs> So, so be prepared for that. Same thing. Everybody's going to come at you from, you know, all your Facebook friends. You'll have, I had childhood friends from, you know, elementary school and junior high and high school that I haven't talked to in 30, you know, 30 plus years, uh, just reaching out and saying, Hey, we heard the great news. Congratulations. And you know how it is on Facebook on your birthday, you get like 200 people that tell you happy birthday and you never have time to go in and thank each individual person.
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, but imagine that when, 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 a, when, a serial, when a killer is caught, um, that's, that's what happens. Everybody and their brother is going to come and want to say something good and encouraging and uplifting for you and congratulatory. And, um, and you may not be able to answer it right away, but don't, don't feel like you have to. You, you do what you can do. I, I would tattoo this on my forehead if I could. I do what I can do, and that has to be good enough. And you know, just just don't overdo it. Don't spread yourself too thin. Have some balance. Have some good personal boundaries. It's important.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like for your own well being, your own personal health, you need to take it in stride and uh, uh, be patient. Because uh, mm-hmm. it can, it sounds like it can be really overwhelming with all that stuff going on.
3: It can, and you know, and I've got such such great support. My family is awesome, but and they're and they're very understanding. But but yeah, there are times when I'll put the phone down for a couple of hours and not even look at it. And then later on I hear this, how come you weren't answering your phone tonight? Because I don't have to, you
1: know? Uh, Yeah. Now you have some time to just sit back and do some stuff that you want to do and, um, not have to be online doing the detective, the amateur detective and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Has that been a little bit of, uh, giving you some more personal time to, to sort of do the stuff you want to do and not that kind of stuff?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I have my life back. And that's, uh, that's been a, a pretty cool thing. I've had, I've got a couple of uh, new grandchildren. We're up to, um, uh, seven grandchildren right now and the eighth one on the way. And, um, you know, just being able to to spend time with family and do leisurely things without feeling guilty, like, like, Oh no, I'm not working on the case. Um, I, I don't ever have to do that again. I don't ever have to work on the case again. Cause he he's on that seal bunk and
1: and and my life is good. My life is a blessing. Well, that's a, a a perfect way to to end our our talk because um, <laughs> that's the outcome you you hope for. That's the outcome I, I think all these families hope for that they can get through all the stuff you've gone through and come out the other side. And that's that's what we're hoping happens in the in these unsolved cases is hopefully they have the same outcome yeah. that that yours had. Um, yeah. Well, Debbie, you know I can't sure. uh, I can't talk to you enough. I'm always happy to have you on here. Um, And I'm so glad it's under these circumstances too, this time that that this happened.
3: <laughs> me too. Mike, I'm just so, I'm grateful for everything you've done. You've had us on your podcast so many times and you've done, I you uh, just did so much to help, help bring this guy in. So I'm grateful for your contribution, but more than that, I'm grateful for your friendship and your support.
1: Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. Once again, If you have information that can help private investigator Jason Jensen in the Utah cases of Christine Gallegos or Rachel Runyon, please contact him at 801-759-2248. You can also visit the Christine Gallegos Connection Facebook page or the Justice for Rachel Runyon Facebook page. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something
0: to somebody